We're bringing it back to the basics today as we are revisiting the idea of essentialism. And that's all I'm going to say about that until we dive in, because it's just the essentials. Today on the Learning Geeks podcast, starting now. Hello, hello, hello. 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 Welcome back. Welcome back to the virtual studio. You know, I just, every time that music starts, I just can't help but have my head start bobbing up and down. It does always. It's just like, it's (laughs) this thing, you know, the music just kind of bobbed up. And, you know, I just saw today that Disney released more tracks from the uh, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge Cantina soundtrack. So now I think there's 18 tracks out there. So if you're looking for your, you know, for more space music to bob your head to, that's Just check it. that out on Spotify. All right. Speaking of Star Wars mentions, and and uh, I got a like we uh, never do that. Well, well, you're right. Which is funny is because I got a text um, on LinkedIn asking if we try to weave in Star Wars every episode, even sometimes if it's hidden, almost like in Seinfeld. Seinfeld always try to weave in Superman. Super, Superman, right? Superman, yeah. right? So, <laughs> so she was asking, "Are you trying to weave in Star Wars all the time?" I'm thinking. Kind of, but we weren't really thinking at that level. But I guess when you say it that way, yeah, we kind of are. But it's not intentional because for me, right, it's right. just always right. <laughs> it is just the way I'm wired up. Right. Yes. Yeah. But I do I do have, um, before we jump in, one really quick pop culture update that has nothing to do with Star Wars, surprisingly. Um, I was in New York this last week. We went to see the new Broadway musical of Moulin Rouge. I highly recommend it. If that movie for you is a guilty pleasure, like it is for me, <laughs> uh, they did a fantastic update for it to bring it to the live stage. So that would be my Broadway recommendation. It was better than the last musical I saw on Broadway, which was King Kong, which mercifully closed just <laughs> last really? month, I understand. I didn't yeah. even know that was in the musical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rawr. Not good. Okay, all done. Not good. <laughs> yeah, Not good. one of those... Yeah. So that's one of those things where who thought that was a good idea from the start? I tell you, we, we could talk more about it because the puppet that they had of King Kong was amazing and it was interesting to look at. But what an awful show. Sounds Rotten. like it. OK, let's dive in, because <laughs> like I said, we're talking about essentials and essentialism. And this is a topic that we started talking about a little bit on our last podcast. So, Dana, maybe you could give us a little bit of a refresher, you introduce bet. the topic, and then we can we can just go from there for half an hour or so. Sure, that's great. So again, this uh, refresher from the last time, I picked up a book called Essentialism, and I was flying back from a summer trip uh, out to Salt Lake. And it's one of those things where, you know, a lot of times on a three-hour flight, you read a little bit, and then you sleep a little bit, and you listen to something a little bit. I was so engrossed with this book that I read the entire time and read uh, 200 of the 250 pages, and then the next day or so, I finished it up. Um, and part of the reason it was intriguing, I, first of all, I think it's it's nicely written, but also I think it's so applicable to the work that we do as uh, learning professionals. Um, and the core of the book is exactly what the title is, Essentialism. What is it that is essential? And the author talks about how essentialism is a mindset. And l- let me just give you guys a quote or two from the book, and then we can start bantering around some of the implications for learning professionals. So Great. here's here's part of the premise, and this is a quote from the book. It's, he said, our whole society has become consumed by the undisciplined pursuit of more. 
The only way to overcome this problem is to change the way we think, to adopt the mindset of doing things that are essential. So that's really the core of it. And then, you know, to kind of supplement that, he says, we've been oversold the value of more and undersold the value of less. Uh, and do you guys ever see that in any of the learning designs that, uh, that you're working on? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> okay. Well, oh, can we squeeze this podcast. content into your course? Right, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, what are some examples? What are some ways that, that you know, we either are told we have to include more or... Um, we just try to cram agendas. What are some observations you guys have? I mean, for me, for me, I think many times whenever we do an in-person session event, which often has, it's usually a bigger thing, right? It just, it's more money. It's more an investment. And when we get individuals together, it's that opportunity to say, Hey, these people are sitting in this room. Let's bring in XYZ topic because we think it's very, very important, right? It's just, it's a space. And I think it's, it's a, it's an easy way to get things in. And, and, and when we say get things in, sometimes it's just to check the box, right? It's in, but that doesn't equate to, to learning. Yeah, exactly. It's just the satisfaction of saying you have done it without necessarily being able to measure the value of it. Does it actually get through and get in? And that's the, the battle we always fight in trying to cram 50 pounds of stuff into a five pound bag which right. happens anytime we do a learning event, right? And, and I think one of the arguments always is, look, we're paying these people to be here. We need to get the most out of it that we can. Yes. Right. And I think, I think part, of the, part of what this book brings to light is getting the most we can doesn't mean dumping the most in, right? Get, getting the most we can sometimes means focusing on the essential things and making sure that there's uh, in the instructional world, there's time to breathe, there's time to contemplate, there's time to reflect, because that's where a lot of the the really important connections start to sh take shape. That's right. You might get it covered, but it's not going to be sticky. Maybe you skimmed across the surface, but nobody remembers anything a week later. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm, I'm also thinking about a program that the three of us worked on. It's the onboarding program within Accenture. And I think uh, in some ways it illustrates what we tried to do in this area, right? Because, um, and I, I think that a lot of people who run onboarding programs probably have the same experience. Every sponsor thinks that their content is the most important content to put in on a, the first day of somebody's experience. And, um, you know, our team and, and Lauren Lobel, who we had on our podcast a while back, just really worked hard to give pushback on that idea that everything has to be taught the first day. And uh, I don't, either of you guys want to reflect on our experience there? Well, I can tell you firsthand that Lauren is still fighting that fight. <laughs> we just <laughs> talked about that last week. It doesn't uh, go away. It doesn't go away. It's it's a weekly, It's a I think it's a weekly battle for her of somebody coming up and saying, hey, I've got something that's really important. It's got to be part of day one. And if it's not part of the day one experience, it's a failure. And, you know, our, our answer to that is yes, your content is important and it is, and we will buy, we'll take it face value that it's something that's important for a new joiner to understand. But if you present it on day one, of course, depending on what it is. And of course, there are some legalities about things that you do have to cover legally, especially in the States on the day one, um, that if you 
cover it on day one, it might actually backfire on you because people are so emotionally invested in it's the first day of my company. They're not remembering the details of this particular program that you're pushing across or this particularly particular initiative that you want them to pay attention to. And so we position it as, yes, we will bring it to their attention, but we'll do it sometime over the first few weeks while they're here. Like, let's tackle that once they have settled in and gotten to a point where they're comfortable and can safely turn their attention to your topic and know that they're going to process it and that something is actually going to connect. That's the way that we have have structured that. And when we're able to do that, it works great. And right. when we're not able to do that, we fight really hard and make sure that we can do it anyway. Right. And honestly, that is a uh, that onboarding issue is something that I think most uh, companies and firms face all the time. Um, I mean, talking with folks within at conferences or those uh, things that we've done within ATD, um, there are just so many people that are struggling with that specific uh, topic, which is how do I ensure what we what we are doing during that time um, that it is valuable, right? And that it, it it is not overwhelming. And sometimes just having that dialogue, and people don't necessarily think of it that way. Where really at the first day, you're you're interested of you know, where's the bathroom or how do I get paid or, you know, those very, very basic questions. And I know like all three of us have talked about the hierarchy of needs. And right when you think of onboarding your first day, you have super basic needs. And as it goes on, the needs change. And I think just what I think is so critical being in that, that role on onboarding. And honestly, I could even make the argument of every time somebody makes a switch in their career, even if it's an internal change or let's say an internal um, position change, like I, I move up a level or, or something like that, you are pretty much onboarding again, right? You have to learn mm-hmm. that specific role again. There's new things that are challenging or um, out of your comfort zone. So you almost have to go through this recycle constantly of onboarding and, and I think it's, I think we have an opportunity really to look at those stages and moments and truly determine what is essential for these people. So let me introduce another quote from the book, and it's going to build on this discussion. So here's another a quote from the book. The word priority came into the English language in the 1400s. It was singular. It meant the very first or prior thing. <laughs> <laughs> Only in the 1900s yeah. did we pluralize the term. Logically, we reasoned that by changing the word, we could bend reality. Somehow, we would now be able to have multiple first things. This gave the impression of many things being the priority, but actually meant nothing was. So I love that because I think when we apply it to what we did with onboarding, you know, we had quite a list of objectives, right? And we went back and we said, what is really critical here? And we said, what's really critical is in this case, capturing the hearts and the minds of our new joiners, right? We wanted to capture the emotion. We wanted them to feel like they made the right decision to come join Accenture. And once we had that focus, then other things started to fall into place. All right. So Dana, honestly, that quote was the most memorable quote so far. (laughs) One of the most memorable quotes so far when I've been reading the book. And I'm not all the way done. I know you have, but I'm about like a little over half. And that one really just stood out to me because I, I first of all, I didn't realize that priority was um, was never plural until that, that point. But then I really think about it and how many times that I have walked into meetings or we've been asked to create your list of priorities. 
you you realize how kind of uh, how kind of messed up this is, right? To think of multiple <laughs> priorities, um, because what it also causes myself is that I've noticed, even just from a work perspective, that when we have these multiple priorities, uh, it's very hard to focus, right? Yeah. And I I really that's one thing I did walk away from is how can we ensure that what we are really really want to achieve out of this? If I'm creating a learning event, I'm creating just a moment. Uh, um, some learning opportunity for people. How do we ensure that they're just truly focusing on that one thing or something that really is more of a high level outcome and we just are focusing on that? And I think that was, was uh, a key takeaway as I heard that quote. Well, you know, to build on that, maybe play devil's advocate just a little bit. Um, you know, I, I get the notion of saying you've got three to five priorities, right? And, right. and that kind right. of gets down to, um, some concepts from agile software development, right? Where your work in progress list should be like three to five items. I, I yep. forget different people have different rules on that, but um, I seem to remember three to five as being the max. Um, the goal there is to make sure that you have something to work on if you have a little bit of downtime, right? So if you're focused on a priority, maybe you get to a point where you have to wait for somebody else's input you don't have anything else to do. You have a little bit of downtime. So is there something else that you can shift your focus to? I think that's what that was going for. That was the goal of that. But the trick comes in is when you're trying to context switch back and forth between those three to five priorities all the time. Yes. I, I think yeah. what we want to get to is like, let's for this moment have one priority, make that our priority, get to the point where we can't advance it any further. And then maybe look to something else that we can focus on while we are are waiting for that stop to get overcome. Yeah. And what comes to mind is the, the whole idea that people talk about multitasking and, and we know that uh, the brain doesn't really multitask. It tasks switches very quickly, right? It's um, And, and, and it, it, it's in line with that, right? I mean, we can switch back and forth, but if we start doing it too much or if you have too many things to switch to, that's where you start to lose uh, the ability to process. Sure. Now, as a learning designer, what I might do is try to get my participants to focus on something 100%, make it their only priority. So again, back to concepts of mindfulness, right? I am focused on this one thing. But then when we're talking about it afterwards, maybe we go back and we reflect on some non-apparent aspects of that that they can learn from, right? So it's kind of like when we're doing group activities and we do a big group activity, we spend some time debriefing, we talk about the content of what we worked on, but then let's stop and take a few minutes and talk about our work process. How do we interact with each other? What can we learn about ourselves and how we prefer to work with other people or what we can grow, in which areas we can grow? Um, so with that way, you can kind of focus on two different objectives at the same time, as it were, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, but that the, the mindfulness and where your brain is, is only focused on one thing at a, at a given time. One of the hardest things I think of doing that is the constant noise that surrounds us in all directions, right? So when we, I think this is what I personally struggle with, um, not, 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 I mean, not for myself, but as a learning designer is how do we get individuals to do that, right? I think there are ways to do that, but when they leave this controlled environment and, or let's say they're in this controlled environment, there's noise around them still. They're still thinking about the 
what they have, this deadline that's looming, or their client project that they have to work on when they get back, or maybe they're they're doing work at night, right? I think there's just all these other layers that um, people are faced with when they get together. And um, I mean, I was just at recently at a test where I heard directly from our from our users about how hard it is to step away because of all the noise that is around them, right? Mm-hmm. And I. And, and, and as much as we try, I think as designers to uh, mitigate that, I there's just there's that challenge that I always face. It's like, how do we help them uh, learn some of these skills too? And I think that might be some of what we can help with is how do you provide some of these techniques um, or at least the support to ensure that learning can take place um, and they're not completely distracted by all this other noise. Well, I want to tie back to something Bob was talking about earlier. As we were talking about designing activities, I think also as we consider how uh, how much detail to put in an activity, or how many rules, or how many steps or procedures to put in place as people are doing an activity, I think we need to be very careful. And I think you know sometimes we do over-engineer some of those activities, or you know if if it's a simulation and we've got work products, maybe we have too much detail in some of the things and. I think there's a lot that we could do with this essentialism mindset that could help to streamline activities so that we get to the desired outcome. And there is a another quote that I remember from the book, and mainly because he was quoting Hermione Granger. <laughs> but um, there's a moment. There's a moment. Wait a minute, where Star Wars. Does, what, Harry Potter too? No, no, no. no. Well, yeah, <laughs> we're all over the place. They're all over. Yeah. But yeah, there's there's a moment when Hermione says, "Actually, I'm highly logical, which allows me to look past extraneous detail and perceive perceive clearly what which others overlook." <laughs> And, um, and, and I, and I like that because what it, it made me think when, when I heard that quote, I made me think of all the stuff that we typically do put in, right. The just overloading of stuff. We try to, we over-engineer instruction. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, maybe that's because we grew up as instructional designers and we're trying to remember, we have to put this instruction here, but sometimes there are people that can just remove that. They can remove all that extra detail and actually see what specifically are you trying to tell me? What does this really mean? And I think if we can do that first, right, especially when it makes sense, right, we should be able to do that as designers, is, is remove a lot of that extra detail um, so that way people clearly see the meaning. So I want to change gears just a little bit. It's still the same topic, but let's think about um, outside of the, the course content itself. Where, where else do you th- think that the concepts of essentialism might uh, have a place so, for example, one that came to my mind was with reviewers, right? Sometimes we want, we use, we pile in reviewers because we are also trying to market the course, right? And get buy-in along the way. And certainly there's some value. But if those, if they're positioned as we want their input, then people are going to give their input. And all it does is elongate the process. That's right. So I think when we think about reviewers, we could also be applying some of this essentialism mindset. Are, yeah. are, are there other areas where you guys think this might help out? Well, looping back to that idea with reviewers yeah. and really any other source of content, you, you know, the theme of the book of essentialism, which by the way, I haven't completely read yet. Let's touch back on that before we go on. But <laughs> um, the, the theme of that is focusing on what's most important. So think through what is the exact value that each particular person on your review list yeah, is going to exactly. be able to provide and 
make sure that that's value that you want. Um, and then, and then call it down considerably. I learned that lesson many years ago and, uh, it has definitely helped me get stuff done, but it is focused. Not, it's not just on the, you know, keeping the list small. It's make sure that you are only getting input from the people that can give you the input that you yeah, really you don't need. want to just toss it to them and say, Hey, can you take a look at this and give me your thoughts? Right. You right. want to say, you know, you, you have this particular expertise. Could you review this section or, uh, you know, may, maybe there is a bigger perspective, but you want to give direction and what you're expecting from them from a review standpoint. Mm-hmm. The other thing is I, I thought a lot about um, the process of designing or developing. I thought of meetings, hmm. right? Hmm. Getting together with uh, with people and really kind of stepping back and being able to one, say no, which he talks a lot about that in the book, right? Being able to say no. And every time... I guess when you create a meeting, if you're the organizer, really think about, does this individual need to be there? And it goes back to this the stakeholder evaluation, right? Does who would provide great value, who reviews my, my things? But even when it comes down to meetings, who provides the right value to be there? Am I wasting that individual's time? Or even me as a person, am I okay saying no? I should be, right? If, if I get a scheduled a meeting, I should say no, especially if it's not something it's a trade-off, right? I sometimes want to be there. I want to help out. But there's other times where if if I can actually not attend that meeting, I can have the white space that I need to think and which then can hopefully open up more creative ideas. And and truly, that's what you need to be a designer for. A good designer is have that white space in order to, to think because that's where I think a lot of those creative ideas come from. Totally agree. So one of the things that I also picked up from this book is that there, and and Bob, you hit on this, there's a lot of agile principles that are explained in the book Mm -hmm. without actually being labeled as agile. For example, the focus on the vital few is one of the phrases he uses. Um, The the art of saying no gracefully. Um, Incremental progress with testing and reevaluation. I mean, all of those are principles that we would say, yeah, that's that that ties into agile real nice. But he doesn't really use the label agile. I think that's also why I like it. <laughs> I, it was essential, not agile. Well, you know, the thought that I wanted to bring back was as to why I hadn't read this book is I, as a learner, am not taking advantage of this philosophy, right? So we've been talking at it from the point of view of a learning designer, but as a learner, I've got so many books on my Kindle that when we talked about it last time, I was like, oh, good, buy that book, put it on my Kindle. And there it Mm -hmm. sits along with the 800 other business books that are sitting there. Um, I did actually manage to read, (laughs) you know, I did manage to read one good uh, learning related book, which was uh, Play to Learn by Carl Kapp and Sharon Bowler. Um, And, uh, but holy cow, I felt so proud of myself for having read that entire book. How do we teach our learners these concepts so that they are able to prioritize for themselves, right? It's not just us prioritizing the content that we're pushing towards them, but how do we, number one, teach them, hey, when you're learning something, focus on just one or two things at a time and then create experiences that enable them to do that. So I think about chunking our content or making it very indexable and findable. Uh, as some strategies for that. But I think that that would be important. Yeah. So I have a, uh, I have one bookshelf that is have read books. I have another bookshelf that is intend to read books. And I used to only have those two, but now I've come to grips with the, I've started, but I have no intention of finishing bookshelf. 
um, <laughs> because it, you know sometimes this sounds like a three D con by the way. <laughs> Speaking of agile, it could be because you know sometimes you get in, someone gives you a book or recommends it, and you pick it up, and you know you read the first couple of chapters, and you go, okay, I get it, or wow, this is really boring, or whatever it may be. Um, and so, but for a long time, I only had the two. For me, it was very um, liberating to say, you know what, it's okay if I don't actually finish this because there are other books that are worth finishing for me. So I don't know if that's something we can yeah. teach our learners or not, but I, you know, I had to come to that personal realization that it was okay to not finish a book I pick up. At one of my other jobs, we used to tell people with business books, read the first chapter, read the last chapter and pick one chapter in the middle that looks interesting and you get most of it, which I think is really true. I think it is true as well. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I think that's my that's my that is a struggle that I have at least with books, uh, business books at least or learning books is that there tends to be you get a lot in the first pair or the first uh, chapter or two, mm -hmm. and then there's a lot of a long dragged out <laughs> version of that, <laughs> and then and then there's kind of this really good like uh, thing at the end where they sum it up, but they also also make it tactical. Um, even though they bring in tactical stuff in between, but they do it in a way at the end that really summarizes it. Um, but anyway, Dana, to your point, I think around, or I mean, Bob, sorry, to your point about what do we do for our learners? How do we start to build these skills? And again, I think we can, we've talked about how to build better learners or how do we be a better learner ourselves? I think many, many times on this podcast, but I think we do that for a reason because it is such a hard thing to do. Um, and I'm going to reference again this this test that I was experiencing with, and I was interviewing and talking with learners. And many of the questions that I was asking, I was trying to probe them to uncover what they are doing from a, from a, a learner standpoint, like what types of methods and techniques are they they using, and many of them are doing um, very basic techniques that you're you're typically used to, right? Where they feel like being in person is the right way to learn. Um, if I try to do something outside of uh, like a, a, a like a train like a training environment or a classroom environment, I'm not going to get the same benefit. I would rather just do it all at once and and be done with it. Um, and of course, as I hear that, I get frustrated. Um, I'm trying not to show my frustration when I'm when I'm asking these questions, or like at least not show or uh, sound like I'm frustrated. But it also what it's proving to me is that there there is a opportunity for us to continue to teach these techniques. And when people start to feel them, meaning where I can set learning goals, I could start to really, I think, provide some or uh, live some of these principles of thinking what truly is essential for me and how is it going to help me grow or how is it going to make me um, uh, more skilled in this area that something I truly want to do, right? So, so again, connecting with relevancy. I think having those points slowly and slowly and adding them into our programs or to even the way that we talk about a learning culture uh, to whatever place you work, th the more the better. Um but we have to also be strategic of how much we give because we don't want to just give them all these techniques and then they're overwhelmed, right? It's slowly see that. Um, and I think it will take a lot of time, but, it, but I think it is, it is a super important thing. So guys, I reckon I want to be cognizant of our time. Maybe I just, uh, I'll give a couple of wrap up thoughts. And then if you guys want to share some wrap up thoughts and we can call it a day. Um, so to me, one of the big takeaways is that from a learning design standpoint is that content bloating, 
I don't know if that's an official term, but I'm going to use it. Content bloating <laughs> begins with, uh, with ill-defined or bloated objectives. And what essentialism is saying for a learning designer is, you know, get those things down to the core when you start, because that, then there's going to be a whole tale of, uh, of things that follow beyond that. So I, I really like the idea of applying this essentialism because it'll improve the focus of objectives It'll increase time for reflection and just all it's going to improve our learning experiences. So if you were listening to this podcast, you can listen to that last five seconds that Dana said, and he summed it up. So using Bob's method, here the beginning, here the end, you've got essentialism. <laughs> we did. <laughs> no need to read those contractually obligated chapters in the middle. <laughs> no, that was a great way to sum it up, though, Dana. It that was. was really good. It was. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Thank you. <laughs> thanks, everybody. So we cut it. Oh, Jake, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, ra- yeah wrap up. Yeah. Okay. Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to us and tolerating us. Uh, stay in touch. Whoever was asking Jake about Star Wars uh, on LinkedIn, that's great. You can you can ping me, too. I'm happy to talk about it. Speaking of her, Bob, yeah? she's actually going to be one of our next guests. We're going to oh. talk about health and wellness. Um within our learning programs. And since that is a huge, huge topic that many, many people are trying to bring in, um, she's one of the gurus in it. So I thought that it'd be sounds, interesting to bring her on. That sounds good. And I was I was just teed in that we have a couple new listeners who are uh, who are our karate teachers. Oh yeah. Are putting together their own I podcast about karate. So uh, for Jackie and Michelle, we're glad you're listening and make sure that you let us know what you're learning from this and uh, let us know so we can promote your podcast for people like me who both are learning gurus and also black belts. And and Landon too, Bob. (laughs) We have to remember to mention Landon. Yes. Yes. Right. Right. So, hey, anybody need any other shout outs you want us to, you know, recognize your birthday or anything like that? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> call us request a song that's good <laughs> I, I actually i did have somebody who saw my uh one of my learning geek stickers this last week and was like i didn't know there were stickers we'll get some stickers out yes we'll we, we will finally do those but we've got to make them a priority and that wraps it up so for uh jake and for dana this is bob thank you so much for being here and we will talk to you soon on our next episode of the learning geeks take care everybody thanks everybody